I don't know about you, but I surely enjoyed the extra hour that was given to us last night. In fact, I was thinking about it, and I think we should pass an executive order that every weekend, maybe on both Saturday and Sunday nights, we get that extra hour. Would that not be nice? Here's the problem. With that extra hour, that is wonderful, by the way, and I should have been in bed, I should have gone to bed at that time and enjoyed that extra hour of sleep, but what do we do? We just stay up an hour later. We just push everything, you know, so we kind of lose any of those benefits that we might have had, but, you know, that was sure nice to have that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in this gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed, a righteousness that is from faith to faith. God's righteousness, the fact that we need Him, how do we become right with God? simply through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness of God that's being revealed. But it doesn't end there. It's we still need God. Even after we come to faith in Him, we still need the power and the righteousness of God in our lives to live this life. Then in verse 18, it says the wrath of God is being revealed. We looked at that last week, and it's continuing on this week. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Romans. Last week, we looked at just the ungodly, people that have just totally turned their back on God and how God has revealed Himself very clearly. He's made it plain to them through creation. We looked at that last week. Look outside. Look inside. Because Paul says in Romans 2 that He's made it evident inside us also. We can look out there and see God, but we have God in here. It's called a conscience. It's called an awareness of who God is that's put inside of us. So we're without excuse um, to stand before God and say, I had no sense of who God was. Yeah, you did, because it was made evident. It was clear. Today in chapter 2, he's going to turn the page a little bit and focus on a different group of people. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 2, you, therefore... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. You know, last week was about they, 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 them, the messed up picture of humanity who has turned their back on God. God gave them over. There was that picture of just this cycle, downward spin of mankind. And it's easy to let it go and say, yep, it's messed up out there. Them. Look at them. And to point our fingers and go, wow, they deserve it. They've turned their back on God, and so everything that we see, they they deserve it. And our fingers start pointing. But notice in verse 1, the pronoun shifts from third person, them, they, out there, to you. Paul's saying to his Jewish audience now, the people that he's writing this book to, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want you to pay attention now, and I'm going to speak to you. So now the the emphasis is the message is still the same. The wrath of God is still being revealed. People that turn their back on God will face that. However, the audience is shifting now from Gentile in chapter 1 to Jews, Jews that 
thought they were maybe doing the right things and right with God, but they had turned their fingers and started pointing, and they were, I entitled this sermon, Godless Judging. He says, you have no excuse, in verse 1. He said that last week to the Gentiles, the godless Gentiles. You have no excuse for not understanding who God is, because God has clearly revealed Himself. Today, you Jews, there's no excuse. There's no excuse to judge. Here's why. Because you're doing the same thing. You've got your own issues. I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. You pass judgment, he says. In Max Lucado's book, Grip of Grace, I like Max has some, uh, just a good way of phrasing things. So I, I want to read this. This is his why we shouldn't be judging others. He simply says, it's not our job to hold the gavel. It's one thing to have an opinion. It's quite another to pass a verdict. It's one thing to have a conviction. It's another to convict the person. It's one thing to be repulsed by the sins of another. It's another thing entirely to claim that I'm superior, because I'm not, or that that person is beyond the grace of God because no one is. You see the difference between holding an opinion and a conviction and actually judging. We don't have that right. We're without excuse, Paul says in verse 1, to pass judgment on other people. Jeff Weiss read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, and I've often wondered if this was, we call it a parable, you know, Jesus told these stories, and he, he, he made them up because they fit around a theme, something he wanted to teach. I've always wondered if this is actually in more of an eyewitness account of Jesus. I wonder if he actually witnessed this on a regular basis, going to the temple and seeing this situation play out. But it's a beautiful parable about people that think, you know what, I've got it nailed down here. It's everybody out there that's messed up. And so Jesus tells this beautiful story about this Pharisee. And if you read that parable, his prayer, what is that? He's thankful, right? But what is he thankful for? He's thankful that he's not like everybody else. Has no appreciation. It's not, his prayer is not even directed to God. It hits, I mean, it doesn't even go above the ceiling. It's so self-centered and so self-focused, I wouldn't even call it a prayer. It's just pride regurgitated. It's an ugly picture. And then you have the beautiful picture of the tax collector. Someone who was not liked, someone who was not respected, and his prayer is pretty simple. It's just, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. There was a story that I read in one of the commentaries as I was reading of a pastor who was meeting with a group of men, and he wanted to have this prayer time. And his desire in this prayer time was that the men would pray for what was going on in their own lives and just really come to God and really be honest with who they were before God. And, and so they started this prayer time. And the men just started praying, and their prayers were all directed about, man, I'm so glad, you know, that I am not doing what's going on out there in the world. And everything was focused on what was going on around them in the culture and how messed up people were out there. And the pastor was just like, what is going on in his heart? And so at the end of the prayer, he closed, and he used this phrase that the tax collector used. 
Lord, he just simply closed it with this, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. End of prayer. Turning their hearts back around to focusing on themselves. God is our judge. God is the one who judges righteously. Um, We are not to be the judge. And so today I want to point out some principles of the way that God judges based on Romans 2 here, verses 1 through 16 that we're going to be looking at. The first one that we see, and your note taker has this one, God judges according to truth. Verse 1 through 5 says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you pass judgment, you who pass judgment do the same. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. There it is. God's judgment is always based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up for wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul really calls it what it is. He calls it hypocrisy. You're doing the same exact thing that you're condemning other people for. So hypocrites do the very thing they condemn in others. There's a verse in James that kind of brings out this truth. James tells us that whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. So what he's saying there, it doesn't matter if you break one law or if you break all 10 or more of the laws, you're breaking the law. You're guilty before God. It doesn't matter. It's, it's funny to me how easy it is to condemn others and yet excuse ourselves. Um, sometimes we do this. We kind of rename things in others and ourselves. And let me just give you some examples. And I've been guilty of this. So as I was reading this, I was like, well, okay. Things like, you lose your temper, you have an anger problem. But I, I have righteous anger. Or even better yet, I'm passionate about that. (laughs) You're a jerk. I'm just having a bad day. (laughs) You have a critical spirit. I just tell the truth, bluntly. You gossip. I share prayer requests. (laughs) You curse and you swear. Boy, that tongue of yours, terrible. Me, I'm just letting off steam. You're pushy and you're rude. I'm intensely goal-oriented. Don't let yourself off that easy. It's, again, it's easy to condemn in others what we don't see in ourselves. Hypocrites think that they will escape God's judgment. Paul says here in verse 3, he says, So, when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? What we're not realizing, you know, it's not about comparing ourselves to them because that's not the, the standard. The standard is God and His holiness. The hypocrite thinks that his sins maybe are different, but in reality, they're still there. 
The other game that sometimes we play with this hypocrisy is, you know, if I can get God's attention directed over here to this messed up person, then maybe God won't notice me and all my issues a little bit. That game might work with parents, because <laughs> as a kid I used to play that with my parents. That might work with parents, because they're human. With God, it won't. He knows us. It just doesn't work. Hypocrites misuse the mercy of God. Show, they, they show contempt for the riches of His kindness, His forbearance, and patience. And I think it's done in a couple of ways. I think as a hypocrite, one way is by rejecting God's offer of grace and forgiveness for me. There's this lack of repentance. And Paul even points it out here. He says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That's God's intention by being kind. But, verse 5, he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. There's something going on there. You're unrepentant. You're stubborn. You're refusing to receive God's mercy and grace in your own life. So that's one way that we can misuse God's grace. The other way is by judging God's grace and mercy in the lives of others. It's like you're accepting them, really? And kind of calling into questions God's grace and mercy in the lives of others. You know, I, I understand why God accepted me because I'm a pretty good guy, generally speaking. But that other person, really? We struggle with that sometimes if we were honest with ourselves. That's simply misusing God's grace. There's a quote, and this is a PowerPoint slide, uh, from William Barclay. And he says, the mercy and love of God are not meant to make us feel we can sin and get away with it. That's a misuse of God's grace, very clearly. They were meant to break our hearts so that we'll seek never to sin again. God's patience, God's forbearance, His kindness is there to break our hearts so that we don't want to sin, so that we turn to Him, not so that we can excuse ourselves and continue on in our sin. God judges according to works. Look what it says in verses 6 to 10 here. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good, good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God's judgment is based on not what we say, but what we do. The issue is not works versus faith. Paul's not saying here that we're saved on the basis of our works, and I want to make sure that we're very clear on that, and Paul's very clear on that throughout the book of Romans and in all of his other epistles. The issue here is more truth versus hypocrisy, to say one thing and then do something else. What Paul is saying is that God is aware of and He pays attention to what we do, and it's important to God. In fact, the gospel here is very clear in verse 7 and 8. It talks about those who seek things that pertain to God, eternal things, will have everlasting life. Verse 8, those who reject the truth, those who turn their back on God, will face God's wrath and His anger. There's, there's the truth right there. So Paul is not saying faith 
He's not saying works is what saves you here. However, even though we're saved by faith, works are important in our lives. And I think even as believers, understanding that. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10 says, We make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all, and Paul's talking to believers here, church at Corinth. He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Works are important. But these are on the basis of reward. What have we done for our Lord while we've been alive here? There will come a time, but our eternal destiny is secure. God judges according to impartiality. Verse 11, this Uh, For God does not show favoritism. God is not partial. That's a huge truth. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And then in parentheses, verse 14 there, it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences are bearing witness, their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times defending them. The truth is God is impartial. In fact, the Greek word for partiality is, is made up of two word, Greek words put together. They are literally receive and face, receive, face. It's the idea of receiving a person or accepting a person or thinking about somebody based on external appearances, the face. Easy to do, is it not? I think we're all guilty of of struggling with that at times. And what Paul is trying to bring out here is this, people will be condemned not because they have the law or don't have the law. And so he gives the example of the Jewish people, you have the law, that's a privilege that God gave you. Follow it, obey it, that's the important thing. For you Gentiles, look, you might not be, have been given the law, but you have a law that's written in your hearts. It's called your conscience. And there's oftentimes, Paul's saying, there's, even the Gentiles, you'll talk about this a little bit later, the Gentiles sometimes maybe do a little better job of following the law even though they don't have it, even though it wasn't given to them, the Torah. So people will be condemned not because they have the law or don't, but because of the sin, because they sin. That's the main point. Look at verses 17 through 20. There's seven verbs or phrases here that speak to the fact that the Jews kind of had this superiority feeling about themselves. That sometimes I'm sure it came out. Um, they saw, and they were the chosen people. They're a special people. And they had all of these privileges that were given to them. We're going to talk about that in chapter three. But man, sometimes it caused this feeling of superiority and pride. And look at verses 17 to 20. These are just seven verbs that speak to this feeling of superiority. Here they are You call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law. You boast in God, you know His will, you approve of what is superior, 
You are instructed by the law. You're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark. You are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. You have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. All these things that you claim to have. And in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, there are three things that Paul's going to talk about that the Jews did have, that they were privileged to have, but yet he wants them to know you can't count on these things to make you righteous before God. The first one of these is the fact that they were Jews. You call yourself a Jew in verse 17. By the way, the word Jew comes from the person of Judah, the son of Jacob, which means praise, God's praise. That's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful namesake. And look at, by the way, just look at the last part of verse 29, right at the end of the chapter. Paul ends with this thought. He's, you know, this idea of being a Jew and praise and God's praise. He says, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. As a Jew, you have God's praise, and that's what you should be seeking, not praise from other people, not trying to impress other people with who you are. A lot of Jews in, in that time, and maybe even today a little bit, feel like just because they're a Jew, they're right with God. That righteousness just kind of comes with the territory of being a Jew. And I think sometimes we fall into that same thought that, hey, I just call myself a Christian and I'm good to go, right? What Paul wants them to hear and understand is that this, this idea of this title or this thing that you have, this nationality, this lineage that you have, in and of itself does not make you right with God. It's not about belonging to a particular group or a nation. It's about belonging to Christ. That's the important thing. So, yeah, you're a Jew. That's great. But that doesn't in and of itself make you righteous. It doesn't make you right with God. And for us, I think sometimes we struggle with that too. Um, you know, a religious heritage it gives you no bonus points, and a secular heritage brings no deficit. This idea that a family tree doesn't save you. I'm fortunate. You know, my, I look back on my, my upbringing. I was raised in a Christian home, surrounded by Christian aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpas. I mean, it was a rarity that someone didn't believe in my family line. I, I consider myself incredibly blessed, but I still had to follow God. I still had to make a decision. And you could argue the same thing. Maybe you were raised in a family line that's just, it's a mess, okay? I mean, it's as far from being godly and Christian as you can get. But you know what? By God's grace, you're here. By God's grace, you're following Him in spite of maybe your heritage and, the, and what you were raised with and what's in your family line. So it's not about that. The second privilege that the Jewish people had, they had the law, the Torah, the books of Moses, God's instructions for them to follow. Paul says there in the last half of verse 17, he says, if you rely on the law and you boast in God, but yet you don't follow the law, there's a problem here. The law is good. You know, the Jews had both general revelation, which is creation and a conscience. We talked about that last week. 
That's available to anyone. It's out there. It's inside us. It tells us about God. But the Jews had, had special. They had the law and they had the Messiah come through their line. I mean, how special is that? God was speaking to them specially and clearly. They had all of this. But God requires obedience. It's not just knowing about the law. It's obeying the law. The Gentiles had a law written on their heart, Paul says. And yet, look what he says in verses 21 through 24. He says, the problem with the Jews here is that you weren't obeying the law. And he points, he kind of gets after them a little bit. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They had the law. They knew the law. They talked about the law. But their life, it didn't come out in their actions. In fact, Paul says, it's such, God's name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's how far off track you are here. So it's not about having the law. It's about following it. Same thing's true in our lives. You know, we can know Scripture. And man, it's great to memorize Scripture. And we, you know, we do this, and I want to encourage you to get God's Word in your heart. The psalmist says, God's Word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. That's fantastic. But if that's all it is, if all it is is head knowledge, then it becomes a problem. 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 tells us, it talks about knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowing about something and just taking pride in that, and ooh, I know all the facts, all that does is puff up, gives us pride and a sense of, I know more than you. But love, living it out, obeying what we know to be true, and actually following through with it, that builds up. It builds people up. And that's the reminder here. Then he gets to the third thing that the Jews had, and this was the sign of their relationship with him, circumcision. Circumcision was what God set as their sign of the mark of God's covenant with his people Israel, beginning with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. Circumcision symbolized the nearness God desired with his people. It declared there's no part of their life too private or too personal for him. It was a unique thing that the Jewish people had that made them different from all the people around them. But instead of seeing it as a sign of submission and desire to follow God for what it was intended to be, they saw it as a sign of superiority often. In fact, they referred to the Gentiles as uncircumcised dogs. Um, We're up here, you're down here based on this, the sign that God has given us. So, to the Jews, it was circumcision. It cannot save you, Paul says. And for us, what is our sign of our covenant with God, of His grace in our lives? I think today, I think signs of the covenant of grace, baptism, when we observe baptism, it's a sign to everyone. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. I'm baptized so that I can show people how much I love God and that I'm identified with Him. 
I'm a part of his people. My life has changed. All of these things are symbolized in that beautiful act of being baptized. The second one's right here, communion. Coming to the Lord's table together and being reminded of his love for us and his death for us. They're beautiful symbols, but they don't save us. They simply are ways that we can show and express and be reminded of God's amazing love for us. And that's really what God intended all along. Look at verses 28 and 29. I think Phil referenced this in Sunday school this morning, the adult education hour. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. He says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outward, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. It is, but that's not all, okay? A person is a Jew who is one inward, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Yeah, it's an outward symbol, but it's more than that. It's about the heart. It's about a changed heart. It's about following the Lord. And that was God's intention all along. I think sometimes we think this idea of the inward reality of things uh, is a New Testament thing. Well, it really isn't, because if you go back into the book of Deuteronomy, into the law, this is what Moses tells the people. He says, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors, and he loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. And then this, listen to what he says. He says, circumcise your hearts. Therefore, do not be stiff-necked any longer. There's a tendency, and he's pointing it out to the people of Israel. There's a stubbornness there that keeps coming up, a lack of desire in some of you to follow me. So circumcision is a sign, but I want you to circumcise your heart to follow me as a reminder. That's an inward reality. You know, I have a symbol that I wear on my finger every day. I don't know if I've taken it off maybe a couple times when I worked in a warehouse. I had to take it off once in a while. But it's there every day, 24-7. It's my wedding ring. It's a sign of a covenant that I made with God called marriage and with Patty. And, you know, it's one thing to wear a wedding ring, and that's great, and we should be, and it's a reminder and a symbol of that. But if I treat Patty like dirt or if I'm unfaithful to my vows in marriage, then what good is this? What good is any of it if I'm not following God and obeying Him? The good news is, verse 16, God judges according to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Look at what verse 16 says. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. God's judgment ultimately will be through Jesus Christ as Paul says, as my gospel declares. God's judgment comes through him. Um, Turn back in your Bible to Acts 17. This is Paul in in, uh, the town of Athens. Now, he's speaking to Greek mind here. Athens, Greece, very philosophical people, Greek-minded people. And he's going to show them the gospel, and he's going to preach the gospel to them. 
It's interesting in the book of Acts, whenever Paul comes to a Gentile audience and he speaks to them about God, he starts with creation, just like we talked about last week. God is the creator. It has to start there. For a Greek mind, it has to, they have to understand that. When he speaks with Jewish audience, he starts with the law, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. It's a different starting point. These are Greek people. He's going to start with creation here. So look what he says in, in verse 24, and I'm going to read through verse 31. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's a creator. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is a sovereign God over all history, over all his creation. God did this. What was God up to? Okay, here it is. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offsprings. That's in quotes. That's a Greek quote from their philosophers. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying, you know, God's ultimate desire in creating us and establishing us as people is that we would seek him and find him. He's not very far from us. A relationship with God begins with the repentance, verse 30. You need to start there. Everyone will stand before God in judgment. But he makes one thing clear. The judgment will come through Jesus Christ, this man who rose from the dead. He's given over the judgment to Jesus Christ because of that. There's three facts we must face. Number one, we're all going to stand before Jesus sooner or later. Either we face him as Savior now or judge later on. Those who prefer to face him as judge will live to regret their decision. So it's Savior now, repent, reach out to him because he's not far, or one day face him as our judge. You know, we started out with a parable, Pharisee, tax collector in the temple, it's a powerful story to drive home a point, and that has to do with pride and how we come to God in worship in the temple. I want to end with a, a parable that I started last week, and it's the parable of the prodigal son, we call it. I think it's mislabeled, but last week we talked about the younger son, you know, the little brat. He disrespected his dad, right? He said, I want you to give me now what you owe me, and he took that, and he just walked away from God, and he lived a life that was terrible. But the story didn't end there, did it? He turned around, he came back to God, repented, and was received with joy. I mean, the image of God running to meet his son is something in Jewish culture of that day that simply would not have happened. 
the father would have waited at best for a son. He would not have ever run to meet him. It just, a picture of a God like that is just unheard of. Why did Jesus tell the story of the prodigal son? I think oftentimes this is overlooked, and the reason is Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's the account in verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and the sinners started to gather around Jesus because there was something in his demeanor, something in his message that drew them. The Pharisees, on the other side, saw all these people (laughs) coming to Jesus and made this comment. He hangs around with and he eats with sinners. Okay, that's verses 1 and 2. And it's verse 3 of Luke 15 says, so Jesus told these stories. He tells three stories. The lost sheep, great story. The lost coin, another great story. Something's lost, it's found, there's rejoicing. It's beautiful, okay? But to the third story, Jesus added an element that isn't in the first two. And that element is the older brother. You see, something was lost, the prodigal son. He was found, he returned. There's a celebration, the party, that the father wanted to have. And so he reaches out to the older brother who's doing kind of what he's supposed to be doing. He's out in the field, right? He had been there all along. But Jesus adds that older son element because, going back to the reason why he even told the parable, he wanted to get to the heart of the Pharisees and their pride. And he wanted them to put themselves in the older brother's shoes. And he was saying, in essence, that's you. You're out there. You're proud. You refuse to come and celebrate this occasion with me and your brother. And what we see in this is pride. The, the older brother, he had stayed with the father, but it was an outward obedience. He had showed contempt for his father's mercy. His father reached out to that younger son and gave mercy. He showed contempt for it. I'm not going to sh- come to your party. Forget about it. I'm going to stay out here and keep working. He focused on the works, okay? I'm going to please you by working harder, okay? Rather than enjoying relationship with you. He disassociates himself from his brother. That son of yours, if you read the parable, your son, okay, it's on you here, dad. He, I want nothing to do with him. Do you see this is attitude of pride in him? The father renews his offer. He says, everything I have is yours, Son, come, come in. It's interesting the parable ends there, too. There's not, we don't know what the older son does. And it's kind of an interesting way to just leave it, and Jesus just leaves it with them. It says, think about that, right? God's offer of grace is open to all. The outward ungodly, the younger son, who just lives life and could care less and rejects God, as well as those that appear to kind of have it all together. The reality is both sons needed the grace of the Father. Both sons needed to be welcomed in to the home to enjoy a relationship with their father. The real focus of the story is the father, not the sons. The real focus is God and His love for those who are sinners. He has come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's 
the reason why Jesus Christ came to earth. That's the love of the Father for those who are lost. That's what we're supposed to catch from this. So I guess the question is, which brother are we? Where are we? I'll let you think about that a little bit. But the Father is extending invitation to us this morning. Number one is He calls us to relationship with Him. It has to start there. If you haven't chosen to receive that free offer from Him, do it today, please. And the second offer that He's extending to us this morning is right here. It's coming to the table together around the communion and remembering His love and celebrating His love. And so I'm going to have Joe... Come up and lead us in communion.